On Farage tonight, an extraordinary FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Has Trump been wronged? Linton on ooze. That's where they were going to house lots of cross-channel migrants. Apparently, that isn't going to happen. We'll ask what next out of the ruins of the government's asylum policy. Norway threatening to stop selling us electricity. Did you know we bought electricity from Norway? Still some who want Boris to stay. And joining me on Talking Pints, television and radio broadcaster for many, many years, author too. Sue Cook. Good evening. Right until the moment he came down the escalator in Trump Tower, Donald Trump was a very popular figure with everybody in America. This astonishing man, real estate successes, the odd failure too along the way, and of course The Apprentice, a mega program in America. But as soon as the orange man threatened to take office, everything changed because he threatened the liberal order with which everybody was so comfortable. And right from the day he was elected, they tried to delegitimize. Him. We had the Russia hoax, it went on for years. The Mueller inquiry, which went on for two years. Two utterly false impeachments, but still they haven't stopped because overnight, extraordinarily, the FBI have raided Mar-a-Lago. They're seeking documents from the Oval Office that they somehow think Trump has kept on his coffee table. Well, had he ever planned a coup on the 6th of January. I doubt he'd have been stupid enough to keep the documents and certainly not to take them back to his home at Mar-a-Lago. The reaction to this has been quite astonishing. A lot of very fair-minded commentators in America saying this is a step too far. This is the Democrats using the judiciary in a way that it was never designed to be. I have to say, I think it's outrageous, but I know why it's happening. Because I was in Dallas on Saturday. I was there at that CPAC conference. I saw all of the Trump nominees who won their primary contests last Tuesday. You can see the decline of Joe Biden, no obvious replacement within the Democrats, and a growing feeling that Trump will run again in 2024 and maybe even win, and they will do whatever they can to stop him. I think they've got this wrong. I think this will make Trump far more popular. But you tell me at home, has Trump been wronged? Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, Linton on Ooze, the old RAF site. Do you remember Boris Johnson standing up at Lyd Airport? The big speech. He and Priti Patel were going to solve the migrant crisis. Thousands would be flown off to Rwanda. Others would be housed at Linton on Ooze rather than going into hotels all over the country at a cost of five million quid a night. And the Royal Navy would patrol the English Channel to stop the boats from coming. Well, a few short months later, it's all in ruins because no one's gone to Rwanda. The Royal Naval vessels they chose, I'm afraid the gunnels are so high, they haven't taken a single migrant on board or stopped a single migrant boat. And now we're here today. Linton on News will not be used. Well, Mark White, our home and security editor, you've been up to Linton on News. You saw the level, I think, of local opposition to it ever being there in the first place. Well, they are delighted, of course. Uh, They were very fearful of the possibility of 1,200 young men going into that village of only about 500 people, Nigel. The RAF base is right next to the village. So some real concern that these people, of course, were 
would have been free to wander around the village. There's only one shop, no other amenities there. And OK, the vast majority will behave themselves, but there was real concern that it only takes one or two to misbehave and you've got potential for trouble. But that's not going to happen now because it seems the Ministry of Defence has pulled the rug from underneath Pretty Patel because having signed up to this plan to allow this asylum reception centre at the base in December of last year. They now, at the 11th hour, have decided it's not going to happen. And of course, the first of these asylum seekers, I'm told, were due to move in next month. And of course, Sunak and Truss, as potential prime ministers, have both said they didn't support Linton Onu. So I guess, in a sense, both the Home Office and the MOD had to comply. But here's the point. 18,500 have come so far this year. It would appear the pace of those coming has quickened considerably over the course of the last month. Hey, they've got to go somewhere unless we start a different policy and send people back. Yeah, weather is going to get a bit better later in the week. I think we could, in the space of a week, be up nearer 20,000 who've crossed the channel since the beginning of the year. I was there at uh, Lady Airport in April, Nigel, yeah. when this big fanfare, uh, Boris Johnson announcing this three-pronged approach, the Royal Navy taking over command and control, thousands going off to Rwanda, yeah. and, of course, Linton on Ouse. Well, Rwanda is mired, as we know, in legal challenges, Linton on Ouse isn't happening. Uh, the Royal Navy are there, but as you say, being pretty ineffectual in terms of being able to pick up. Oh, but they do get to tow in the empty boats once Border Force have picked off the passengers. I mean, you can't believe this. It's very efficient. Um, <laughs> the, the, the problem now that the Home Office have, and it is a real problem, is that they can't just uh, summon up somewhere else like Linton on Ouse. As painful as it was to contemplate for the villagers up there, something had to be done significantly to try to stop the use of, it was 30,000 hotel rooms every single day for asylum seekers. When we did a report revealing that uh, two and a half months ago, uh, we didn't realise another 10,000 would cross the channel in the interim. So these people require accommodation as well. It's a growing crisis. Where do you put them? You can't keep paying out more than £5 million a day. This was the solution. These big bases with the ready-made accommodation, put them in, yeah. uh, and it's going to cost a lot less. You can manage it better with all the facilities there. But it's highly controversial because no one yeah, wants and, it. And of course, in when the Napier barracks in Folkestone were used, they set fire to it. The yeah. migrants set fire to it. So it's not going away. Would it be fair of me to say that the Lid declaration that we got from Boris Johnson, supported by Priti Patel, that all of those policies that were laid out are in ruins? Uh, absolutely. They are in tatters. They really are. There is no doubt about it because Linton's not happening. As I say, yeah. Rwanda isn't happening anytime soon unless the future prime minister, whichever one that turns out to be, decides that we're going to come out of the uh, ECHR, yeah. uh, then it's still going to get challenged in the courts. So they will be frustrated at every turn. I think they will. Well, Hamilton District Council and their leader, Councillor Mark Robson, will be delighted at this news. There'll be some celebrations going on in Linton on Ooze tonight. But the problem doesn't go away. Now, Mark White is still with me. Mark, I talked at the top of the programme about this raid on Mar-a-Lago that happened. And I think already 
there are Democrats beginning to fear this may look very, very bad to fair-minded people. Were the White House involved in this decision? Nigel, they are saying publicly no, but I think it's inconceivable that the FBI would go, even if it was the Attorney General who'd signed off on it, uh, would go ahead with this without sanction from the Biden White House. This is a former president. This is unprecedented. It's never happened before that uh, law enforcement have raided a, a president, former president's home. They've done that on this occasion. Uh, interestingly, Mike Pence, former vice president, is calling on Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to account for why this has taken place. Others are calling for the director of the FBI to share what the intelligence was. What was it that they were looking for that was so important that you decide to take the very grave step of raiding the former, a former president's home? Quite extraordinary. Well, let's cross over to the USA. We're joined by Michael Graham, who is the managing editor of Inside Sources, a DC-based media company which provides news and opinion content to over 200 newspapers across the USA. Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining us over My here pleasure. in London. We are, I have to say, somewhat bewildered. I mean, nothing like this surely has ever happened before. Uh, it's certainly historic and it uh, caught people's uh, attention. But when you said earlier that there's no way that this Biden administration would do something this high profile without the president signing off, because that's just too stupid to imagine, I would remind you that no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of President Joe Biden. So I, I just don't know. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was at CPAC in right. uh, Texas this weekend, and Trump's approval rating within the Republican Party and conservative movement is higher than even Ronald Reagan's was at the peak of his powers. It looks better than 50% chance that he is going to run again, that they are going to take the House, that they are going to take the Senate. I mean, won't this look to fair mind, I mean, there'll be those that hate him and have always hated sure. him, but won't this look to fair-minded people like an abuse of power? So what are the three ways this can go? One way is they can come out and say, here it is, you know, Jimmy Hoffa's head or whatever, you know, the guy who cuts Boris's hair, you know, what is some other horrible crime, you know, and that could be one way. <laughs> or they could come out with another way of, well, we looked, we didn't find anything. And then the immediate reaction is, why the heck would you do this 90 days before an election, knowing that he's likely to be the nominee of the other party? You know, if this were, you know, just to use an example, George H.W. Bush sending in someone for another Republican, you'd say, well, you know, got to look at crimes and this is the rule of law. But this is one party doing this to another party. So that's the other way is they have nothing to show for this. But then what if and you could argue this is the third one. If they come out and say, yes, he has four pieces of paper that should have been filed in cabinet X. And, you know, it's basically, you know, an overdue library book. Are they really going to prosecute Donald Trump for the crime of this paperwork? And I don't want to even get into how the fact that uh, up until the minute that Biden was sworn in, Donald Trump had the power to declassify every document. So he could have said, everything you're loading in the truck, I now declassify him, and that could be the whole thing. Don't even get sidetracked that way. What this is doing, it is feeding the belief among Republicans, even among less than enthusiastic Trump Republicans, that the guy has always been treated unfairly, 
And this is part, no Democrat, no matter how awful a Democrat was, no Jimmy Carter, no Joe Biden would ever be treated this way. And if that's what they're doing is feeding that resentment, then they've created problems both in the midterm this November and probably, as you said, uh, two years from now when Trump is the nominee. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, Mike Pence, you know, has not been much of a supporter of Donald Trump since the 6th of January for reasons that are fairly straightforward and obvious. And yet Pence has spoken up, you know, very strongly um, in his defense today. Um, Watching Donald Trump, as you've done so closely over these years, we've seen the statement that he's put out and uh, basically hinting that America's become a banana republic under Joe Biden. What do you think Trump's next move will be? So uh, if you know, he's very good at theater and this is a theatrical moment. You know, this was the problem with Trump. You know, COVID was terrible. Obviously, it was terrible for everyone. But from a standpoint of management, you know, that's not Trump's you know, uh, strong suit, being consistent and calm. He's much better at short bursts of frantic activity designed for the cameras. And this is, you you got blue lights out at his house in Florida. It's designed for the cameras. Interestingly, the reporting that we're seeing is that he's getting some people advising, jump in the race now. Just to take this opportunity. And other people are saying, no, 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 cool off and let the story develop. And like I said earlier, if it develops, there is, in fact, some something related to a serious crime then that changes obviously the entire trajectory and we're having a very different conversation. But if there's nothing, you have to wonder if Trump doesn't have a showman sense of timing of let these guys talk themselves into a cul-de-sac of how important we had to do something we've never done before. We had to treat an ex-president the way we've never treated one before. And then there's nothing. And then he steps in and, you know, pow, lays the Trump on him. It'll be very interesting to watch. Michael Graham, thank you very much indeed. For joining us. Funny, isn't it? Thank you, Nigel. When Hillary Clinton was Secretary... Thank you. When Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, 33,000 of her official emails just disappeared. But we didn't see the FBI moving on. Well, I asked your view. Has Trump been wronged? Some of your reactions. Sharon says, absolutely demonizing Trump instead of dealing with the real issues. This is what Russia and China want from the West. Russia wants Ukraine. China want Taiwan. Love him or hate him. He was the best diplomat the USA ever had. Yes, and he would have said China. Another viewer says, answer no. Well, okay, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on that if you think he wasn't wronged. I think he was. I think the whole thing's outrageous. Elliot says, unless some very serious charges can be laid against Trump as a result of this raid, then it's hard to see how he has not been wronged. Although, helped maybe help to win the next presidential election might be a better description. And Ryan says, of course he has. Although the deep state and Democrats have made a huge mistake here, this will strengthen Trump's position. I've been really trying hard, folks, not to believe in the deep state theory, not to talk about it, but it's very difficult to think there isn't a deep state. Goodness gracious me, even Boris Johnson has been talking about the deep state, all of which says to me that he could, if he chose, linger on the backbenches and cause a huge problem. Now, we reported a couple of times last week, there's still a campaign for Boris Johnson 
to be on the ballot for Boris Johnson to stay. I think it's completely for the birds. But David Campbell Bannum and former MEP thinks Boris should be on the ballot. I mean, you've got, is it 10,000 signatures? Well, it's, ne it's nearly 20,000. Uh, is it? You know, yeah, it, that's right. I mean, to be honest, I've changed my position slightly because I'm backing Liz Truss. I think, you know, now the ballots are arriving, it's more important to ensure that uh, we get Liz Truss in rather than Rishi, who stabbed uh, Boris in the back. But it's still an amazing achievement, nearly 20,000, that the Conservative Party are looking at 10,000, um, which is part of the Constitution. There's, the part of the Constitution actually allows a challenge, a change of the Constitution. So I look at it in short term and long term. Long term, I think we do have to change the rules around the party leadership. Um, but short term, the reality is we don't have the Boris ballot at the moment. Uh, and well, therefore, it's important that Liz uh, gets full support. We have 170,000 people, or whatever it is, yeah. choosing the next Prime Minister. You know, a fraction of 1% of the electorate. Mm -hmm. So Charles Walker, who's the MP no, uh, no. up in Hertfordshire, and, and he suggests that, oh, no, no, the party members shouldn't be voting on this sort of thing. We should do it in Westminster. Yeah. What would be a better way? Well, I think you can't cut the membership out. I think that's totally undemocratic and wrong. And they tried it with Theresa May. You know, she was anointed. And look what happened. You know, she fell apart when it actually came to the election, the worst possible moment, and we nearly got Corbyn as prime minister. So don't cut the membership out. I mean, there's even talk now of, of, of getting abandoning hustings and forcing Rishi to, to concede. Well, I don't believe in that. You know, the members have but to see. But isn't the problem that we're now expected? I mean, it's almost unbelievable to wait until the 5th of September. Yeah. And yeah. we have an impending economic crisis, and you can you know, choose how severe you think it is, but it may well be an emergency. If we're going to wait till the 5th of September for a new prime minister who then puts into place with a new chancellor a budget, by the time this is all sorted out, and there's a budget in the middle of October, you may well find that people are so hard up, they'll never forgive the Conservative Party. I, I think the scale of the challenges we face are, are very, very scary. To be honest, Nigel, I remember I liked going out in the 70s, personally. Well, um, maybe, well, maybe uh, as a result of Boris Johnson uh, um, marrying right. Carrie and bringing in the Goldsmith family and deciding to wheel wind turbines everywhere, they might go out again. Well, I, you know, I mean, I personally think we've got to pause net zero until actually India and China stop building coal-fired power stations, you know, which we're getting rid of, and that's creating a problem. Uh, I hear what you say. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, look, government carries on. Uh, Liz Truss is still foreign secretary. She's still making decisions as foreign secretary right in the middle of this leadership contest. Government is preparing, quite rightly, for an emergency budget. Um, but how can uh, it? Well, it doesn't know who the leader's going to be. I mean, one of the most sensible things I heard today was that the Treasury, the civil service, should be working now with the Trust and Sunak campaigns and say, look, if you win this, what is it you want to see in this budget so that actually they can move quickly? As I understand, that's not yeah. actually happening. Well, I don't know if it's happening or not, but I mean, obviously the civil service is grinding on, you know, and, and that you have the 2019 manifesto, which both of them are actually signed up to. So there's that backdrop as well. I'm not saying everything is being well, delivered on that. that. But actually, yeah. but actually, and here's my biggest gripe about the whole thing, yeah. right? There's a 2019 manifesto that got a whopping great majority. Some of it was utterly dishonest, 
For example, the pledge to build 40 new hospitals when their definition of a new hospital is a new wing mm. to an existing hospital. Mm. Others haven't been met. And yet you've actually got Truss and Sunak offering you a different, fresh start mm. to a 2019 manifesto. It's mm. not very fair on the electorate, is it? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of policy thinking coming through, which I like, lower taxes, you know, um, from Liz Truss, you know, I, I like where she's heading on this, uh, and dealing with net zero, as we've touched on, you know, pausing it, or whatever you're going to call it. Um, I think it's very kind of rejuvenating, a lot of his policy, you know, I think Boris was a great leader, but some policy ideas needed, you know, to be challenged and, and to be taken forward. So, I think it's actually very positive, but I take your point. There's a massive challenge ahead. Oh, uh, and, and, and we'd just be looking about, about the Lindenall yeah. News, just sort of final quick point. The Lindenall News decision, that isn't going to happen. Yeah. Rwanda isn't happening and won't for many, many months to come, if at yeah. all. The yeah. Royal Navy strategy has been a disaster. I mean, frankly, when it comes to dealing with illegal immigration, the government's been a disaster. Well, I think you and I know that it's the European Court of Human Rights that's a problem, the Human Rights Act that Tony Blair brought in, and that must be addressed. And Dominic Rabb was actually addressing that in legislation. And I think, to be honest, until we actually sort that out, then we're going to have problems with lefty lawyers, you know, pulling people off Because planes. we didn't do Brexit properly. Well, it, 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 we, it's the next stage, isn't it? Because, of course, it's not part of the EU, as, as well we know. We used to look at it across the European Parliament. Yeah, that, that, that's right. But I, I think, you know, Suella Braverman said some very good things about that during this leadership David, contest. I have to tell you, I think the Conservative Party is in more trouble than it really understands. But I love your optimism, which is very, very important. <laughs> and thank you that's for joining us. Now, power has been a theme that we've returned to again and again and again. And, and you know, one of my biggest criticisms has been, of course, that Boris Johnson wanted to turn us into the Saudi Arabia of wind, which is terrific when it's blowing at a force five or a force six. But when the wind doesn't blow, it's a little bit of a problem. Now, last Wednesday, beautiful weather. We were buying in electricity from a Belgian operator at 5,000 percent more than the normal price. And something I wasn't fully up to speed with is that a 400, I mean, this just, you, you couldn't believe this. A 450 mile interconnector joins Blythe in Northumberland to the Kividau power station in Norway. Yes, we import electricity from Norway when the wind doesn't blow. But the Norwegians, it would appear, have a potential problem. And Catherine Porter from Energy Consultant What Logic joins me to explain it all. So, I mean, I, you know, I knew we imported electricity from France at times. I didn't know when the wind doesn't blow, we needed to get it from Norway. But the Norwegians are saying they might not sell us anymore. Is that right? It is. And we don't just import from Norway when it's not windy. We import a lot of the time from Norway. Um, but Norway relies on hydroelectric power and its reservoirs are running low. And now it's looking to maybe restrict those exports. And put, and put its own national interest first. Well, yes, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, Norwegians have invested huge amounts of money in their hydro infrastructure. It should be for the benefit of Norwegians before the benefit of other countries. Yeah, funny, we don't sort of seem to sort of think about things in those ways. How much electricity do we have to import at times? Well, National Grid is saying that it thinks it could import 5.7 gigawatts in the winter if needed. Um, and that's compared with the capacity margin it's rating at 4 gigawatts. Um, so that's the, the amount of spare demand, uh, spare generation yeah. over demand. 
So essentially, all of that would be coming uh, from imports. Uh, and I'm just not sure that's very realistic, to be honest. So we're importing electricity, we're importing gas that we could be producing ourselves, we're importing some types of oil that we could be producing ourselves, we're importing coal, which we still need, in the, albeit not in huge quantities, but in the steel industry. Uh, we import wood to burn in Madrax power station. Mm. I, I mean, does, does nobody in this industry or in this sphere think that becoming energy independent would be a good thing? Well, actually, quite a lot of people think that we need more energy independence than we have already. Right. Um, it just hasn't been, um, not just not government policy, but it hasn't really been widely ex accepted among politicians more broadly. It's so not really a party political. Yeah, and it's not a party political issue because all the parties seem to be broadly on the same page with this. Um, they want to see lots of imports. They think imports are a, you know, a good thing across the board. Uh, and they can be, but specifically with electricity we've been we haven't been using them appropriately um, and with the Norwegian situation it's because their electricity can run out so it's not we won't run out of wind it might not be windy but using wind today doesn't mean we can't use it tomorrow but in Norway if they use the water up today then that's it until it rains or the snow yeah. melts yeah no I mean the wind turbine can work tomorrow and can work the next year but if we get a fortnight I mean just looking at the weather map before this program came on there is a very very big high pressure yeah. a 1976 style high pressure building over the UK for many parts of the UK there may be no wind at all for the next week or more. Have we, have we become over-dependent on wind energy? We've replaced too much conventional generation with wind without properly thinking about what happens when it isn't windy. And even the way National Grid does all its analyses, it's, it looks at average generation and not generation when it's not windy. And that's when we have the vulnerability. And in the past, people used to say, well, it'll always be windy somewhere. But we've been I, learning that, that that's not yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and September last year, for example, there was low wind for three weeks across all of Northern Europe. And so if you have low wind in Britain and Germany at the same time, and we're both trying to import, um, then it's almost as if we're, you know, the sum of the demand is bigger than the sum of generation yeah. that's available. And looking at the Conservative leadership contest, the next Prime Minister who will you know, chart the course for the next couple of years, do you see anything in the positions of both candidates that will change things fundamentally? Not really. Not at the moment, no. And I think we need some radical change. Um, we need some urgent actions this winter um, to try and do the best that we can. Obviously, the options are yeah. limited. Um, we need to really progress with nuclear in the medium term and just make better technology choices. You know, these reactors that the French are trying to build, they just don't know how to deliver them. And there are other alternatives. The technology that was proposed for Anglesey um, those types of reactors were built in under five years in Japan. Wow. So why are we not doing that? So it can be done. Exactly. Interesting. Catherine Porter, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You see, I knew we'd put too much dependence on wind. And goodness me, it comes back to us every day. Now, my What the Farage moment is the President of the United States of America, the most powerful man in the world. Let's have a look at him yesterday trying to put his jacket on. It really is quite an extraordinary picture. So here he is. And all right, we can start off by being nice and say that he's outside a helicopter and it's windy. But as the next few seconds go by, it gets ever so slightly agonising. So Jill Biden comes in to try to help. So she's managed to get his left arm in the sleeve, but it's not going really very well, as you can see. And oh, well, he's sort of half got it on, but it's looking 
a bit of a mess and he's walking out towards the camera. And, oh, dear, he's dropped something on the floor. He has to pick that up. The glasses have gone down. And it is just a complete shambles. But perhaps even worse than that, here he is on the lawn of the White House with Chuck Schumer, who, of course, is the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. And it's a presentation. So Schumer shakes the president's hands, goes to the other three people on the platform. And Joe Biden forgets that he just 10 seconds before had shaken Schumer's hand. It is a complete and utter embarrassment that this man is leader of the free world. Now, the BBC, you know, and obviously I've been very critical of the BBC over the years, but there are some things the BBC does magnificently well. And one of them happens every Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. And it's been going on for 70 years. Now, if I'm in the car at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, absolutely, I tune in to Radio 5 Live to get the weekly football results. And it's done beautifully. It was done for years by James Alexander Gordon. He did it for decades. He did it beautifully. The music's been the same music for 70 years. And the BBC are going to get rid of it because they seem determined to get rid of all the good things at the BBC to make absolutely sure that the commercial competitors can hoover up the market. Strikes me as being absolutely mad. Well, it is time for Talking Pints, which, of course, as you well know, is my favourite time of the day. And I'm joined by, well, what do I call you, a veteran broadcaster, <laughs> author. I mean that very nicely, Sue Cook. Welcome oh, to, to the programme. Very nice. Nice glass of rosé. To see you. Very good. Mm. And she does watch the show. So there you are. We you? must be getting something right. Now, 1974, you start broadcasting the birth of commercial radio. It was terribly exciting. Yeah, it, it really was. Yeah. Because before that, I mean, radio outside the BBC was ships in the North Sea, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, and uh, being buzzed by aircraft and things. And yeah, it was. It was, being... it was pirate. Yeah, pirate radio. radio and illegal. Suddenly, illegal. Under the pillow, fading in and out. Yeah. No. Well, I used to listen yeah. to it. Um, <laughs> and then. You get poached by the BBC and suddenly, within a very short space of time, you know, you are doing very, very big programmes. I, I could hardly believe it. That's the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing as a broadcaster. I was quite quiet, really? not very extrovert, shy, you know. My family were amazing. That's Susan on the television. I can't believe that's my auntie Ivan <laughs> used to say. <laughs> but you did a mixture over all these long years of radio, of television. Yeah. What I found really interesting was... Now, here we were, the mid-1970s, and what do we have? Inflation, very high. Interest rates rising very rapidly. Cost of livings crisis. Um, people's savings evaporating. Slightly familiar. Before the very eyes, <laughs> and here we yes. are, many years on. And, but for many, many people, they've never seen this before. Mm. For many, many people, you know, anybody under 50 has got no memories of any yeah. of this stuff happening. Did you feel, you know, doing what you did, that you were able to help people through that period? I think that was what motivated me, was feeling useful, you know, doing something. I mean, uh, things would go up a, a penny, two pennies, five pennies of pence a day. Yeah. Um, and it meant a lot to people, you know, a jar of coffee would be suddenly five pence more than it was yesterday. And, you know, you could actually save a lot of money by buying different vegetables or different fruit and different fish. I used to have to go, when I was at Capital, they started this super savers idea. Um, and I had to go to Billingsgate and I had to get up at four in the morning. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I went to Billingsgate and uh, looked and see what catches were coming off the boats yeah. and what seemed to be a good a good catch. Mackerel was suddenly loads of mackerel, so that was yeah. going to be a good buy, or loads of coley or something. And then I went on to uh, Covent Garden, which it was then for the mm. veg market. Mm. Luckily, they were all reasonably close together, and see what um, what things were coming in from the lorries and the the planes and things there. And then I'd go on to Smithfield, the meat market, which was my least favourite, really, but, and then find out what seemed to be good there. So I, I did. I got up at four in the morning for the first four days. But I made sure I talked to somebody reliable <laughs> each market. So, look, can I ring you at six o'clock in the morning? And, and, you, and, and you sort of developed this idea of 30 yeah, products that were in the basket. Because it was yeah. entirely because of that financial climate that yeah. I, my career took off because consumerism suddenly was really important, you know, saving people money. So the BBC poached me. They were going to set up this uh, BBC shopping basket with 30 basic mm. items mm. in it. I can't remember what they all were now. Um, and uh, I would do a bulletin on the price movements. I'd get press releases from the supermarkets to give them, you know, people their special offers from the different things. Um, so I used to do that on you and yours yeah. on Thursdays. Yeah, to a massive audience. Yes, yes. I mean, these, people would kill for audiences. You could get those days. But, well, I'm going to talk about they... broadcasting and how it's changed <laughs> yes, in a moment. Yeah. But I've been thinking about this over the last month. Those families that were confronting this in the 70s, and predominantly women, because yeah, they were running the households. Yeah. I mean, they just were, that's the way it was, yeah. like it or not. Yeah. But these were women who had lived through at least one war, and in many cases, two. They were used to hardship. They were used to rationing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And they pretty much just got on with it. Absolutely. You kept breathing. You kept carrying on, and you know. people cut back, and I know yeah. people moaned about it, and... But this is coming as a heck of a shock today, mm. isn't it? Because I think, I can't really remember, but even in those days, we didn't, fridges were reasonably new, weren't they? I don't think people mm. had massive fridges and freezers. So people did cook fresh vegetables. You know, my mother, I seem to remember, would go shopping two or three or four times a week. I'd get sent down with a little list of three yeah. pounds of potatoes, two pounds of carrots, whatever. And there would be fresh food on the, on the table, which is much cheaper than buying processed food and things, everything from supermarkets. Everything was yeah. a little I local just, shops. I, I just think there are a lot of people today less well equipped yeah. to deal with hardship and very, very difficult situations. Mm. Yeah. You know, now obviously you went on, I mean, you know, one of the ultimate big programmes you did was Crime Watch, which became just massive, didn't it? Yes. I was a bit nervous about it to start with because I'd been doing a programme called Out of Court for BBC Two, where we were talking about miscarriages of justice and where the police had behaved badly and where judges had been idiots and you know, the, the legal system was, uh, was ludicrous. And then you swapped sides. <laughs> swap sides. So the joke was that I'd be sort of letting people out on, on Out of Court and then putting them back in jail on Crime Watch. <laughs> so, why, did crime, why was Crime Watch so huge? I suppose um, people were fascinated by... Crime. I mean, I must say, when I was younger, my father had um, a radio with, with complicated radio. They got all sorts of channels, and I used to love trying to find the police channels and listen to whether there was, you know, some drama going on yeah. up the road. I think people have always been fascinated by the drama of crime and the drama of real life crime. And in those days, we did we made it very real. We didn't have music and we didn't um, fabricate dialogue that might have happened in the reconstructions. It was just a straight mid mid. Um, close-up where you told people the straight story of what had happened. No adjectives. I never wanted to sort of build it up into something dramatic. But I think less is more. If you start adding adjectives, you know, you begin to think, well, maybe they need to exaggerate. So, um, and also I was worried about 
violence or and normalizing violent crime. So I really sort of yeah. held it back. And all, I think it just, it worked. Well, it, was, it, it did work. Mm. But all those years, all those years, you're broadcasting big radio shows, big TV shows, big audiences. Which of the mediums did you prefer? Radio, I think. Radio. Although the nice thing about television is the team. I really loved working as a team. Everybody's got their role. And um, you know, it wouldn't happen with any of the individual people there. Not quite such big teams these days as, as they used to be. You know, every, every camera had at least two people on them and there were floor managers and assistant floor managers. It was a whole crowd of people, whereas it's, this is a bit, bit more minimal now. But, but I, so I did enjoy that aspect. But there's something very nice about radio and being direct and, you know, yeah. you're talking to one person. I was that was the up. Terry Wogan thing, wasn't it? That, that, that when Terry Wogan was asked on one of the chat shows about this huge eight million audience, or whatever yeah. it was. He was like, how big is your audience, Terry? You know, and he said one person. I didn't see that, but that, that's And he felt he right. was talking to one person. Mm. Well, what we're trying to do here at GB News hasn't really been done before, because this is television, but it's going out, as you and I speak, on yeah. DAB radio in people's cars yeah. as well. So, and it's live, and you feel and you are live. talking to people now, which I love. Yeah, and so when I showed the pictures of Sleepy Joe unable to get his jacket on, right. and then not remembering he'd just shaken Chuck Schumer's <laughs> hand, I sort of talked over it, trying to do both at the same time. But broadcasting is changing quite quickly, mm. with streaming, with a multitude of channels, with paid-for options, with... I mean, the BBC, you know, I talked a moment ago about five o'clock on a Saturday and, and it seems to me they get rid of some of the things that really are cherished and loved yeah. and, I, and I, I sort of wonder where that comes from but and the BBC politically I would argue through the ref well after the referendum particularly is not I don't think it's covered itself in glory no. what is what is the future of the license fee the BBC where does all this go soon? well I think it's, sadly it's not looking very good I mean it was an absolute national institution and a huge treasure um, and I think they still do some good dramas although not quite as good as they used to be and the, you know you can see all the woke boxes being ticked can't you as <laughs> the cast comes on <laughs> um, and the foreign correspondence is is still second to none and people like Frank Gardner and Jeremy Bowen and Oligar and they, they are you know wonderful but I think the news gathering is um, really quite shameful and the questioning I don't I, they don't seem to want to question anything shameful is quite a strong word well yeah it is shameful I, I throughout the lockdown did anybody ever ask why what's happening to children how are children going to be affected if you're closing down schools how are, you, are university students going to be affected if you're shutting down all the universities? What are these people going to do? Kids wandering around the streets. You know, have you not thought about... I mean, kids' knife, knife crime went up. But were there, was there any journalism about that? Did anybody test the PCR tests or test the lateral flow tests and the, the fact that different laboratories had different standards for them? And, you know, we were basing all our policy on that and it was very unreliable. Where was the BBC for goodness sake? I mean in my day we'd have been out there, you know, we'd have we'd have done investigations and found out the truth. But they didn't seem to want to do that. They were so frightened about, you know, being contra to the narrative and maybe, you know, the only thing that mattered was COVID people not getting COVID if possible. Mm. Which was never going to happen. I think a virus does what it, a virus does. You know, and and in the wears itself out and yes. mutates that's and changes. No, no, no. I mean, that's a, that is a very strong criticism of it. So, of all these new channels, I mean, are we going to finish up 
do you think, having to pay for everything we watch? Or will it, or will it be a hybrid of free-to-air? Where are we going with all I this? Know. I think it might have to be a hybrid. It is a shame because the BBC's licence fee is £159, I think, isn't it? Mm. Which is incredibly cheap. I mean, I looked at my Sky subscription the other day. It's £80 a month. Yes. That's sort of 80, 800, 900 quid a year. But then we choose to have Sky or not. Uh, well, yeah, sort of. But, you, you know, there's still a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily want to watch, but it's all there, you know, you're paying for it anyway. And there are a lot of, um, you know, local stations, there's the online content. It should be, I mean, it is very good value for money if they produce the goods and they've stopped producing the goods. Yeah, it's interesting. So. It's interesting. But after all these years of broadcasting and you've written a couple of novels as well and you've done lots of things but you said that stopping broadcasting was like a bereavement it was really because it was such a way of life and i love the adrenaline and as i say I, everything i did really nearly everything i did was live and i'm a bit dreamy so i can you know gaze off start to gaze off into space if i'm not careful but if it's a live program you know your adrenaline's flowing and uh, there you are, and I used to have the earpiece, and you sort of feel for, for the time you're on, on air, you're in charge, everybody's depending on you, all these people have worked to produce the content, mm. and you've got to present it, and it's, it's um, you know, it's a, so you it's a it. privilege. You miss I it. I do miss it, yeah. yes, I do miss it. Who was the best person you worked with? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, Michael Aspel was wonderful and capital, lovely, yeah. generous-hearted person. David Jessel was a lovely writer, worked with him on Out of Court. Um, Terry Wogan was a terrific laugh, great fun and yeah. much missed, you know, really. He, he made children in need, it's not the same now. So, yeah, it's all those three, I think. He worked with some fantastic people. Yes. I mean, you really, really <laughs> did. So what happens next then, Sue Cook? Because, you know, you are... Answer, I read that your grandmother lived to 107, is That's that... That's right, yes. 107, yes. I mean... And my mother will be 103 on the 30th of August. Right. <laughs> so we had a 102-year-old man in here he? the other day, and he was a Omaha Beach veteran. He was with Amazing. it. So centenarians, the female side of the family. Yes. So there could be a lot of Sue Cook left, a lot of living to do. <laughs> you set the bar rather high, I think. You know. So given that you may well have decades more... <laughs> Well, it's what next for Sue Cook? Oh, I don't know, maybe something, you know, everything's in my life's been a lily pad coming along, I'm paddling along and suddenly there's a lily pad comes and you step onto that and you think, oh, I don't know where I'm going to go next and another lily pad comes along and you step onto that. So I don't know what the next lily pad will be, but, you know, I've got my mother to look after who's 103, as I yeah. say, and I've got a grandchild, hopefully a few more come, coming down the line one day. And was all of this really an accident? Yes. I really, I mean, are you really telling me that you've had this stellar career in broadcasting and none of it was ever planned? I always wanted to do well. I always wanted to have a good reputation. I wanted to do something well. I wanted, you know, when I was a, a girl guide, I had an arm full of badges, you know, <laughs> and at school I did all the AO levels I could manage to do. I do like achieving things, but I never thought I'd be a broadcaster. And advice to young people getting into broadcasting? Bring something to the table. Don't do a media course. Ah, don't do anything. Because that's what everyone thinks they yes. need to do. Yeah. Do something completely different and bring it to the table. That's my advice. But you know what? I reckon that's good advice for politicians too. <laughs> do yes. something different. Absolutely. Don't just do a PPE degree. Suka, <laughs> absolute pleasure to have fun. you on Talking Pines. Thank you very much. We've got some time for Barrage the Farage. Let's see what you've got for me. 
today. Some of them can be very difficult. Anthony asks, would you agree with me that Pretty Patel is the worst, I think, so far so good, Home Secretary that this country has ever had and has achieved nothing other than making Britain an international laughing stock? Anthony, the worst of this is if you're in government and you keep over-promising and under-delivering, I think that's terrible and it lets people down. And that big declaration at Lyd Airport, and rather than letting Pretty do it, Boris stole it. Boris suddenly stepped in. The Royal Navy are coming into the Channel. We're shipping thousands off to Rwanda. Um, and, of course, Linton on Ooze will open. The problem is virtually over. And today we know the whole thing lies in tatters and lies in ruins. And Pretty Patel, ever since 2019, has made a series of promises that she simply hasn't kept. I don't think it's just all her fault. I suspect that she's been up against a civil service that never, ever wanted her to succeed. But her record, I'm sorry to say, because I do like her personally, but her record is lamentable. Mary asks, is your suntan real or painted on? I am not the modern-day incarnation of Robert Kilroy Silk in any way I can assure you. I'm a big outdoors person, but I really am. You know, weekends, I spend very little time in the house at all winter or summer. I'm out fishing, I'm out gardening, I'm out walking, I'm out doing stuff. And the weather this summer has been truly incredible. Now, actually, I've been looking paler on screen than I really am because the, the sort of powder, anti-shine makeup, um, when I take it off, I look even browner than I look to you today. I can assure you it is not fake tan. I can assure you <laughs> I have never, ever been on a sunbed in the whole of my life. But thank you for the question. Finally, Michael asks me, why does our country always seem to be caught unawares when any severe climate incident occurs? Rain, cold, heat, drought, they always seem to catch us off guard. I think moaning about the weather, uh, the railway's not working properly, it's almost a national sport and a national tradition. It does, it does frustrate us, but I think it's ever been thus. I think it always will. You know, Britain has actually got the best climate of any country on the planet. We just, we've just got the worst weather. So I don't think any of that should worry <laughs> us too very, very much. Well, thank you very much indeed for being with us today. Astonishing scenes at Mar-a-Lago last night. Worrying scenes, I think, for US democracy and perhaps potentially even quite worrying for the harmony of US society. But that is how mad the hard left are on stopping Donald Trump's agenda.